This is Essential. 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 This is Essential Audio. Welcome to the Money Pot, our podcast at Money 2020. I am Sanjeev Kalita, the editor in chief, and I'm here with Rachel Morrissey, one of our content producers. And Rachel, this is our last episode of 2020. We made it. I know. I can't believe it. We relaunched the podcast in February, and we have done 46 episodes talking about fintech trends around the globe. And I am particularly happy to be doing this episode because it is a big reason that we get so excited about fintech. And I found us another data and policy nerd that we have to have on the show again next year. (laughs) We love policy nerds. So who is he? I'm John Pitts. I'm the policy lead for Plaid. And under John's direction, Plaid put out the first of their new series of reports called the FinTech Effect. And the goal is to get real data about the changes that FinTech is having on consumers. So my first thought was, wait, this is policy research done by Plaid? I mean, Plaid is a back-end powerhouse, but usually we look to consultants for research. So I asked him, why was Plaid investigating this? There have been stories about what fintech is doing to help consumers for at least 10 years at this point. Uh, And what has been missing from those stories or sort of anecdata, as I like to call them, is actual hard data. And Plaid sits in this relatively interesting position where we have an overview of what's happening in lots of the fintech world. And we thought that that position was something that we could leverage to start putting some hard facts to some of the narratives around fintech and actually see whether the promise of fintech is playing out at the individual consumer level and really starting to deliver the benefits that everyone has said fintech could deliver for the individual consumer. And can I just say, I love that he calls it attic data. As someone who has trafficked in attic data for most of her careers, it's a great term. Because it's usually more than anecdotal. There is data that backs it up, but you're depending on indirect data. And usually the data isn't gathered by pulling general consumers. This type of data is operationally hard to put together because it is broad. It's complicated, and a lot of it is actually very nuanced. Let's think about your credit card for a minute. Do you think it's a Visa or MasterCard, or do you think it's from your bank? Or if it's a co-brand, is it from an airline? Getting the consumer's viewpoint is actually a much more difficult task, which is why I think it's cool that they decided to do this. Honestly, I'm also a bit surprised, but glad. So how did Plaid decide to get the hard data? They actually hired a polling company to make sure that they got a broad sample of consumers by geography, age, race, and gender. And as part of geography, they made sure to look at rural, urban, and suburban areas across the U.S. I mean, they wanted to know whether certain demographics were high adopters and make sure to challenge the assumptions we have about the fintech customer. There is a bad narrative in the industry that the people who use fintech are all urban, all young, or millennials and all higher income. I think it's a little bit based on the history of how smartphones were initially for the higher end of the market. I I think that there's still a lingering fallacy that fintech, by association, is a luxury. So what did they find out? 
happy freaking holidays to fintech is what they found out. I mean, the survey numbers were incredibly positive. 73% of Americans say fintech gives them more control over their finances. 68% said that it reduces financial anxiety. 55% said it saved them time. And at least 45% says it helped them save money. For consumers making less than $100,000 a year, using fintech has helped them save $360 a year in interest and bank fees. Those are some very nice numbers. They definitely support the idea that using financial apps and digital services can help Americans do better. As we head into a period of financial distress with the expected K-like recovery, with some doing pretty well and others falling into hard times, it is a good sign that we can use technology to help. Although that will depend on whether fintech can really attract the unbanked or underserved. Can we really expect fintech to be a bridge to financial services for those that aren't banked? Well, and they asked about that. So now we've been able to put a real number to it, which is 14%. 14% of uh, vulnerable consumers, their first entree into financial services was via a fintech app. Um, and So one, it's meaningful to me because we now have a real number around it. Like this, this is what we are doing uh, as an ecosystem to be more inclusive and overcome some of the barriers to entry that have uh, existed for decades. The other thing that's interesting to me is it, it suggests that fintechs have been able to develop business models based specifically on seeking out people who traditional FIs have not sought out as customers, right? So this is not people where there's always been this like, uh, uh, is it new people or is it cream skimming question about fintech, right? Is fintech just picking some people from the bank population and offering them a new service? 14% suggests that what's actually happening is fintech is pushing into uh, populations that have not been banked, not even underbanked, but just have not been banked and starting to pull them into the financial services world in a way that we haven't seen before. That I think is incredibly promising. So 14% of those surveyed said that they were completely new to financial services when they tried a financial app for the first time. Yep. And 75% said that using fintech made exploring new financial areas less intimidating. Underserved consumers found that they used fintech as an on-ramp to financial services to solve a problem. Okay, so they have a problem and they begin Googling to see what they can do to solve that problem. And then they download an app to address it. Yeah, exactly. One obvious problem that many of the most vulnerable communities face is banking deserts. There's often a perception that when people talk about banking deserts, right, and and lack of access to traditional brick and mortar uh, financial services, you know, a, a lot of people, the sort of picture that gets painted in their mind is a traditional redlining kind of thing, right? Where like in an urban area, there's some neighborhoods, often minority neighborhoods that don't have as many banks as other neighborhoods and that that's the real sort of gap in access to financial services. And, and I, I'm not saying that gap isn't real. It's, it is a real one. It's pernicious. It still exists. And it, it's something to be addressed. But there are as many, uh, if not more, banking deserts in rural America as there are in urban America, where you are hours from your nearest brick and mortar financial services. Uh, some of the 
lowest financial access places I have ever been are in the Mississippi Delta, right? Which is a very rural part of the country where there just aren't a lot of financial services options. And the thing that's most exciting to me about fintech sort of generally is it takes the geographic space of where your financial services are from the map to the three and a half inches of your phone screen, right? Where like, if you want to uh, get access to a new surface, you need to move your thumb a quarter of an inch. That That's a real change in the lives of people. And particularly for urban America, uh, for sorry, particularly for rural America, where there are these deserts and there are these real physical geographic barriers to get services. I think it presents a sea change in a way that hasn't been fully appreciated by a lot of the fintech coverage, which again is focused on sort of urban, young, uh, affluent people as the adopters of fintech. So I've maintained for years that the real issue with financial inclusion is technological inclusion. According to Pew Research, smartphone adoption is at 81%, which is way more than it was 10 years ago. It it definitely is. And it would be interesting to see what could be built upon a national broadband that makes access more affordable. Yeah, that was my thinking too. And John used to work at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. So he likes to ruminate about policy solutions as well. It raises some policy questions too, uh, that, that you point to, right? When you think about the geographic world, we used to think about like the Community Reinvestment Act, right? You do you say like, if you have a bank in this physical location, here's how you need to make sure you're serving the population where your bank exists. In the fintech world, it may be like, how are you serving populations all over the country? Um, and are you making sure you're making your product available to everyone, regardless of race, class, ethnicity, national origin, when you can't actually see them or interact with them and where your customers may be five states away. You know, it's a fascinating issue. I think there probably will be more problems to solve, but to me, one of the big surprising numbers that came out of this report is there's actually greater use of fintech by black Americans, by population than by white Americans, greater use of fintech by Latino Americans than white Americans by population. That to me suggests that some of the historic pervasive uh, structural discrimination that has been in place in financial services, I, I think based on geography and other things, is starting to come undone when you move into the digital space. In the early 20th century, Einstein revolutionized physics when he combined two seemingly disparate things called space and time. I feel like we're starting to approach a world where we can combine seemingly disparate things like money, and distance. New technologies eliminate physical distance, so the key road bump is mental distance, which new experiences can also help overcome. It's like the 14% that will use fintech before they approach traditional financial services. Some may not go to a bank because it's too far away, but there are other issues as well. Yeah, some people might feel overwhelmed by being in a traditional financial establishment. I know for myself, When I have a financial question or issue, I used to feel a bit of shame that I didn't understand what I could do. I mean, I also feel a little wary of talking to a person at a bank. I mean, finances can feel very private and personal. And studies have shown that often people from minority backgrounds have to go into settings where it's difficult to feel like you belong. And the numbers of this study reveal that Blacks and Latinos and Hispanics use fintech more than white people. 
They think that part of the reason is the anonymity that digital provides. It's less embarrassing, less intimidating, more inclusive. We mentioned earlier that people often download an app to solve a specific problem that has arisen. Yes. And the adoption of a single app seems to lower the bar for adoption of another one. One of the things we found in our survey that I thought was most interesting for the long-term trajectory of fintech is that um, the more apps a consumer uses to do their financial services, the more likely they are to go get a new app to help them with their financial uh, services and financial management. And and that's interesting because it creates almost this sort of virtual reinforcement, uh, sorry, virtuous reinforcement where you try one app, maybe out of necessity, right? Like maybe your bank branch was closed and you need to pay the babysitter and you don't have any cash, so you download Venmo and you use it. And it's a good experience. And you say like, oh, this this is something I like. This is something I trust. This is something I'm in control of. That solved my payments problem. Now I need a, a, a personal loan. Maybe I'm more willing to go to a... Uh, cabbage or a blue vine or someone like that because I've had that good experience with one app and I am more willing to try another one. And so what you get is experimentation followed by a better result, followed by more willingness to try more experimentation. And the thing that was interesting is it was not just PPP, it was statistical data from the survey really showing that as consumers start down this path, they're liking the results they get so much that they're willing to try more and more different options in there. And I think that creates a reinforcing effect where you're going to see faster and faster consumer migration to the services that meet their needs and give them better results. And that's powered by the consumer having real sovereignty and control over their financial information and therefore the ability to easily shop for lots of different options. So as consumers adopt more and more apps, they also see themselves as more empowered in the financial system. The research also shows that nine out of 10 people using fintech plan to continue expanding their use. And also they report having more confidence in their financial decisions. The beauty of fintech experiences is that they're dynamic They're often personalized, and they incorporate past history. What if Netflix didn't use your viewing history? What if it wasn't able to be updated every moment? That would be similar to brochureware websites at the dawn of the World Wide Web, wouldn't it? But fintechs are able to present a smarter set of options, which help consumers feel like they're seeing more relevant information and more likely to make a choice that is better for them. And according to John, it's really shifting our understanding of financial literacy altogether. Some of what we saw in the numbers is actually breaking out of um, what I would view as sort of a traditional binary of financially literate or not financially literate. And it's something that I think is actually quite healthy to break out of because um, the financial products and services we have today are immensely complex. Let's think about a typical uh, 30-year-old consumer who may have a car loan, a mortgage, a credit card, a student loan, um, a debit card. Do you think that they understand the nuances of how every single one of those products work? 
that's a totally unreasonable expectation for us to put on the average consumer, let alone hundreds of millions of average consumers. What fintech allows is for us to move from sort of financial literacy to sort of actionable financial information. And and that to me is the key is what do you need to know? When do you need to know it? And what's the information that is most pertinent to that critical decision as you're making it? And I think that just in time sort of aspect is what fintech makes uh, makes possible. And I think the really, really interesting thing about what's happening in the market right now is as you give the consumer more control over their financial information, and because they've got more control, they've got more choices, what the consumer wants is what you're going to have to deliver if you're going to ever keep that customer. I think you have to be on the side of financial advocacy if you're going to be successful. It is really gratifying to see that the growth of fintech does include those that have been traditionally underserved, those that need the help the most. We've told that story for years, so it's great to have evidence. And we know that this is only scratching the surface. Fintech keeps working to solve more issues that fell through the cracks of traditional models. It might be strange for me to say this, but the good thing is that there are a lot of cracks, which means a lot of problems to solve. I get excited by that because inevitably we hear about a new solution that makes you want to slap your head and say, why didn't I think of that? And then we'll find that things like investing, savings, expand to more people who can now better plan for the future. That's it for this issue and this year of The Money Pot. We are already working on episodes for 2021, so keep an eye or an ear out for that coming early in January. And we can't wait to continue bringing you insights into the most interesting issues around financial services today. Thank you to John Pitts at Plaid for his brilliant insights. And thank you to our producer, Roland Boddenham, for making us sound smarter than we are. Well, some of us. If you have an idea for the show, please email me at podcast at money2020.com and please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen. We hope you all have a safe and happy holiday and that we make 2021 a great year. This is Essential. 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 This is Essential Audio.